two, one. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show here on the ProVision Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the program, Eric Couch. Eric, how are you? And Great. I know how excited you are about our guest today. I'm stoked. This is going to be this is going to be awesome. One of my heroes. So today we are talking to world-renowned motivational speaker, coach, uh, entrepreneur, author Les Brown, who one of my favorite quotes that he says is, "It's not over until I win." Um, and we're going to talk about all kinds of things of just living a legacy, not just leaving a legacy, but how are we using our influence today to live one out and help others. And man, this is this is like the author of Living a Legacy right here, Les. So. We're excited to have you join us. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Eric. I, I really appreciate being here, and I'm looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to it and getting myself together, getting my flat top all in place. So let's go. All right. All right, <laughs> Eric. I know, I know Eric has thousands of questions, so go ahead and start shooting. I do. So so one of the things that I do is I always I always reach out on social media and I say, hey, we're interviewing this person today. What questions would you like to ask? And I always get bombarded with some wonderful questions. Some of them throw me for a loop. Um, and some of them are just, you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like baseball derby where it just kind of floats in and you're like, oh, this is a good one. Yeah, we got to run with that. Um, you know, so one of the questions that came up and I always like to kind of find out how this started is you speak about your mom a lot and I'd like to know just the influence there and, and some of the background of, of, of her influence and then how you got into doing what you do today. I'm so glad you asked that question uh, because I'm here because of two women. One gave me life. The other one gave me love. God yeah. took me out of my biological mother's womb and placed me in the heart of my adopted mother. And, and so mama, she, adopted us we were six weeks of age i have a twin brother and then she took in five other children so i'm one of seven oh, and i feel seven. like abraham lincoln who said all that i am and all that I ever hoped to be i owe to my mother and she was a domestic worker for wealthy families on miami beach and and she took me with her to work because the neighbors said i had too much energy and i was a little touched in the head so she had to take me with her. They didn't want to keep me. <laughs> well, and how but much? She did. Saying, yeah. Wow. Saying you owe so much to your mom, it just she must have really been the way that formed who you are and understand things. Oh, without question, because she never had any children herself. She had a third grade education, but she was a driven person. She promised our God, our birth mother. Uh, according to my godfather, that she would never, ever separate my brother and I, and, and we will never go to bed hungry. She will always provide a roof over our head and clothes on our back, and, and she kept that commitment. So she was my hero. When Father's Day came around, she served as a father, so I gave her a Father's Day card as well. And, right. and then I met a gentleman by the name of Mr. Leroy Washington, who had a similar personality as, as the two of you, Neil. And I was in his class and he said, young man, I want you to go to board and work this problem out for me. And I said, sir, I can't do that. And he said, why? I said, I'm not one of your students. I'm just here to see Mac Arthur Stevens. He said, go and do what I'm asking you to do anyhow. And I said, I can't. And then the other students started laughing, saying, he's Leslie. 
He's got a twin brother, Wesley. Wesley's smart. He's DT. And he asked, what's DT? And they said, he's the dumb twin. And I said, I am, sir. And he came from behind his desk and he looked at me. He said, don't you ever say that again. Someone's opinion of you does not have to become your reality. That's right. And when he said that, that jarred me. Because how people live their lives is a result of the story they believe about themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and so when I was in the fifth grade, I was labeled educable, mentally retarded, put back from the fifth grade to the fourth grade. I filled again when I was in the eighth grade. But my junior year, when I met him, when he spoke, he disrupted the vision that I had of myself, which was very limited, low self-esteem. And I followed him around. He didn't know it but I took him on as my spiritual father. I watched him, how he dressed, how he spoke, and I, I wanted to be like him. He was a great influence in my life. Wow. You know, mentors, having, having those development people in your life makes all the difference. Um, and, it, it, you know, I, I've, I've watched in my life as, as at those key points, right, the, the Lord just brings the right person at the right time to make the difference that's, that's literally, you know, am I going to go left? Am I going to go right down this path? And that's exactly what that, that, that teacher did for you, right? Without question. When I get up in the morning, uh, first thing I say, all things work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. That's right. And then I have an affirmation that I repeat to myself constantly, Lord, whatever I face today together, you and I can handle it. And, and when I speak to people now, even in the face of Corona, we must know that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We must know that we will get through this, that where we are has not come to stay, it has come to pass. And that this is not a place to be fearful. You know, something Zig Ziglar said. He said that, that the majority of people faced with a fearful situation, they forget everything and run. Yeah. But then there's a small number who face everything and rise. Yes. But my favorite book says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind. So I keep proper social distancing from people and social distancing from the refrigerator as well. <laughs> wise words, wise words, my friend. Definitely, and definitely lesson when I hear this, you pretty much believe in a way that your mindset is, you can create this for yourself. And the question is you bring up how important God is in your life. But some people feel that we cannot believe that we can achieve, be the best we can be. We kind of have to be humble in a way, but not really make a huge difference and really transform and create ourselves to what we want to be created to be. Why is that? There's different, you know, spiritual outlooks on things, but your mindset is always in the positive that we can do what we make up our mind to do. Why well, is that? Less? Right. If we examine ourselves and, and just live by the book, Herein my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So we are here. We were created by the Creator to create. And, and, and when we look at ourselves, we have to ask ourselves the question. And I always talk to audiences. I ask them three questions. What goal that you have on a personal level? 
What goal do you have on a financial level? And what is your social contribution? He said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Horace Mann said, we should be ashamed to die until we have made some major contribution to humankind. So this place in my life, my goal is to help people to live a life that will outlive them. We were right. chosen, one out of 400 million sperm. We were chosen to come here to do the greater work. I strongly believe that. And that because for the most part, we have an entertainment-driven culture, people get caught up in that, as opposed to taking the time to reflect and to think, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Uh, something Dr. Howard Thurman, who was a mentor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Albert Schweitzer, Mahatma Gandhi, he said the two primary questions that one must ask oneself in life, number one, where am I going? Number two, who's going with me? And he said, if you ever ask those questions in the wrong order, you'll be in serious trouble. Where most people don't know where they're going. Most people, they die at age 25 and don't get buried until they're 65. I have a very good friend, the late Miles Monroe, who used to say, rob the cemetery of your genius of your dreams, of your potential, of your skills, your talent. And, and that's what we have to do. But most people, because we live in a world where we're told more about our limitations rather than our potential, they take their dreams, their talents, their abilities, and their potential to the cemetery and right. not pursue them because they allow fear. 86% of people allow fear of failure to outweigh their desire to live a life that will make a difference, live a life of a greater impact so that we can create a better world. You're exactly right. So in fact, on that note, one of, in, in your speech about you deserve, one of the, the quotes that I love from it is, the wealthiest place on the planet is the It's the cemetery. Yeah. Yes, not in the Far East where there's oil in the ground. It's not South Africa where there are diamond mines. The wealthiest place on the planet is the cemetery. In that speech, I talk about live full, die empty. When we look at where we are with the coronavirus, I see it as a cocoon. That, that in a cocoon, I don't care how fast a caterpillar try and run, it can never fly. But when it goes in the cocoon, it's not in there watching CNN or MSNBC or any other stations. It's in there working. And so this is a time for us to reflect yeah. and look at our lives and look at who we've been and how we've showed up. There's a reckoning that's going on. And major change never takes place until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are affected. And so I believe that at this point in time that we begin to live our lives from a place of love. God is love, and he who dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in them. And so right now it looks bad, and it's going to look worse even before we get out of here. But in the middle of a surgery, it looks like a murder. But when we right. come out, there's a healing on the other side. <laughs> Sunday's coming. It is. And see, that's the lessons learned through this challenge, through not being able to interact with people the way we're used to interacting with people. If we don't take this opportunity to grow, we're going to miss out in something that we'll never have to deal with ever again, hopefully, in our lifetime. Yes. Right. It, it, you know, I, had, I was going through a tough time 
And you are really, really right. This student of mine told me, she said, until you handle it with grace, it will stay in your face. I'll never forget that. And you are absolutely right. If we don't handle this appropriately, it's gonna come back. It's gonna stay in our face. We live in the greatest country in the world that gives us an opportunity to make choices, to, to be able to play a role in the kind of world that we're going to leave for our children. I'll never forget, I called my daughter one day and she said, I'll call you back. And I said, what's going on? And she said, oh my God. I said, what's happening? Was there an accident? She said, no. She said, I was stopped in traffic by a policeman and he was waving for a funeral procession to come by. The hearse came by and there was only one car behind it. She said, Daddy, when I die, she said, I want, because of how I live my life, a life of service. Greatest among you will yeah. be your servant. I want there to be a long procession of cars. When I die, I want the cemetery to be filled with people who come out to celebrate my life because of the contribution that I made. And I think that this is a place where we can all reflect. I had an experience. I'm, I'm here in Atlanta. And... My doctor, Dr. Uh, Alfred Golson, who was one of the top oncologists that I first was treated by in Washington, D.C., uh, he said, Mr. Brown? I said, yes. He said, you have fourth-stage cancer, prostate cancer. I oh. said, I do? He said, yes. And he said, well, you also have another challenge. I said, what is that? He said, your PSA is... 2,400. I said, what does that mean? He said, one to four is normal. And I said, can you give me a second opinion? He said, yes. And you're ugly too. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you didn't call me ugly, did you? I said, come on, that's such a serious thing. He said, yes, but you got this. We determine the diagnosis. You and God determines the prognosis, I never tell a, a patient they're terminally ill. What I say is that my ability to help you has terminated. Yeah. Now you need to leave here and go and have a conversation with God. And so when I left his office, I didn't leave with a heart full of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. I left there with a heart full of faith that I will get through this. I'm going to be all right. He has never left me. And I do believe this. That was 27 years ago. And I'm still here. <laughs> wow. Well, and you're, you're exactly right, right? PSA is not public service announcement. The power of God and the power of yourself, because it has to be together, working yeah. together. Absolutely. Man's faith in God is measured by his faith in himself. Mary McLeod Bethune said, pray as if everything depends upon God, and work as if everything depends upon you. <laughs> so, you know, talking about just belief and, and, and pushing through, I, I was reminded, you know, my, my, my father lived with us for four years. He had Alzheimer's, and, and uh, about a year, year and a half into moving in with us, um, he really just came to know the Lord. And he would spend hours and hours all day, every day. He turned off the TV, which had been on 24-7. He's just in the Word, and he's constantly telling everybody. And I remember he'd go sit with my wife and just struggle on how to get this. And he was trying to memorize, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. 
And he would get down, he would break down at the kitchen table to the point of tears because he would practice for hours and hours. And the other men in the group who are all 70, 75 plus, you know, they would get it and, and some, but, but dad would just, he was constantly doing it, constantly practicing, constantly writing it down, could never memorize it. And he just struggled and he, he would get emotional about it. And then I remember my wife telling me one day, I get emotional about this. She says, and I'm actually in the room. This was his bedroom uh, before he passed away in 2018. I'm sorry um, for your loss. But Catherine, and his bed was right here. And Catherine walks by the room and his door's open and he is asleep. And he says, greater is he who is in me than mm. he who is in the world. And it's like, you know, just because we can't see the fruit of our work, just because we haven't experienced the success yet, doesn't mean we give up because it's inside of us. Whether we can verbalize it when we're in front of people or when we're awake, doesn't mean we're not absorbing everything that we do and see and that we put our attention and our heart's affection on. You are absolutely right. That's why we're taught to walk by faith and yeah. not by sight. The judge not according to appearances. There are things that we're capable of doing that we have no clue. I sat on the sideline for 14 years. I didn't believe because I don't have a college education. I was labeled educable mentally retarded. I was put back from the fifth grade to the fourth grade, failed again in the eighth grade. I never worked for any major corporation. So I could not see myself speaking for corporations around the world. I speak for Fortune 500 companies. I've spoken over 50 countries. And I say to people, just because you can't see it does not mean that you can't do it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor is it in the heart of mankind what God has in store for you. So part of what, when I wrote my book, you've got to be hungry, those who hunger, right thinking, right words, right feeling, and right action, and right relationship. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. And so I, I, I share with people, you must become a risk taker. This God said, if you're not willing to risk, you cannot grow. And if you yeah. can't grow, you can't become your best. And if you can't become your best, you can't be happy. And if you can't be happy, then what else is there? And so, to me, where we are right now, this is a time where we're being challenged. Um, Marion White said, in life, when you don't have enough courage or insight to know that you've outgrown a situation and it's time to move on, life will move on you. So it's a spiritual moment that we have a chance to ask ourselves, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? We came here to do something. We came here to do the greater work. And most people are living a misplaced life. We were not born just to work for a living, but to live our making. And living our making will make our living. Some people know right away, but the majority of people, they must experiment to find out why you're here. There's a purpose for your being here. It's been said the two most important days in our lives, the day that we're born and the day that we realize why we were born. I was born to speak and to motivate people. I told my kids, when they tell you I died, don't let them involve me for three days and come down uh, to the funeral home and slip a microphone in my hand. If I don't grab it and say, you gotta be hungry, you can call your brothers and sisters <laughs> and say, dad's gone now. 
Yeah. <laughs> now, Les, hearing that, you know, the motivation and story about speaking for Fortune 500 companies, but yet still speaking of God in everything you do, did, how did speaking develop for you? How did that happen? Writing what first I, or speaking? The, the, what, the speaking came to me because of Mr. Leroy Washington, the gentleman who told me someone's opinion of you does not have to become your reality. I wanted to be like him. I admired him. He taught me three things that's very important, and it's very important to people today. He said, number one, he said, you don't get in life what you want. You get in life what you are. As a man thinketh, so is he. He said, work on your mind. That's number one. He says, number two, upgrade your skill set. He said, you don't get paid by the hour. You get paid for the value you bring to the hour. Find at least three things that you love that you want to master, that you love it so much, it's a calling on your life, that you love it so much that you do it for nothing, but you do it so well that people will pay you to do it. So I speak, I train speakers, and I author books, all right? And the third thing that he said, practice a principle of OQP, only quality people. You can't make it in life by yourself. You wanna create a team of collaborative, achievement-driven, supportive relationships and he said then with those three things going for you it gives you an edge of being able to live your dreams rather than your fears yeah so question for you um i started going through a, a program a couple years ago that just helped me with my worth and and you know, of, you know, you have your speech you deserve, right? And I really struggled with that term deserve. As a, as a, as a believer, my initial thought was, I know what I deserve and, it, and it's not good. It's not positive. I know the sin that so easily entangles me. Um, but I also know that, that, you know, as a believer, the Bible in New Testament talks about sinners like three times. It refers to us as saints. It, it's either 54, or 57 times. So, so I'm not, a, I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I'm a saint who still occasionally struggles with sin. And it's, it's, my, it's my belief system, right? But when I started this, my belief really struggled with, I deserve. Mm, I, that when, it, you're, when you're trying to think of positive, it's easy. Rather, you're, regardless of believer or not, it's easy for us to believe when we think about deserve. I can, I can see myself deserving a lot of negative, but I really struggle with seeing me deserve anything positive, right? Even if that's receiving a gift that's been given to me, you know, so, so our worth, our deserve, you know, I had a friend the other day, I was talking to him about the same thing. Uh, and actually my wife's the one who helped me. And she's like, Eric, if you got a PhD, why are you still working for minimum wage? I was like, Ooh, that's okay. And I was asking, I was talking to him and he was like, you know, this, this struggle of my worth, he says, it just feels too new agey. It feels, it feels like a prosperity, you know, name it and claim it rather than where I, the gifts that the Lord's given me or something like that. How would you address that? That's my question. How, how, how do you help that person see their worth and, and. He dropped yeah, I think his internet dropped. We can cut it back in when he comes yeah. back. Yeah. Let me uh, stop the recording for a sec. 
We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Caregiver Dave. Dave, how are you? I like you. you know, we just continue to have interesting guests. But when I read this guy's accolades, I was absolutely blown away. And I mean, I know the song that we're going to be talking about, but we're going to be talking about much more. So go ahead and introduce our guest. DJ, <laughs> my gosh, I grew up with this guy. 70 million albums worldwide, five-time Grammy, Grammy Hall of Fame. I mean, I can go on and on. But uh, let me just introduce BJ Thomas. Welcome hey. to the show. Hey, thank how you doing? Glad, glad to be you, here. Uh, thank you for the memories. Thank you for everything. What, who, just who is BJ Thomas? Uh, and why were you put on this earth, do you feel like? I mean, that, that seems like a dumb question because we all know the answer. But I want to hear you say it. Well, yeah, you know, I always, uh, uh, always had the, the the desire to sing, and ever since I was like a tyke, a little, a little guy. But who I am is just a, I'm just a guy like you, and I'm a husband and a, and a father, and that's what I was put here for. But there's a lot, there's a lot of me in my music now after all these years. So uh, that's just something I always had a had a burning desire to do, and. Uh, not, even even when I got in my first, we we formed our first band. Uh, you know, it, I had never really even thought through the fact that I was going to have to get up in front of maybe a, a lot of people and sing, and uh, so I, I never even thought about that. And maybe I was just in denial. But when that first that first gig when I went out and there were all these people, I I had to start thinking about it and learning how to do it. You know. Did you always think, BJ, that that when you when you, you were going to be this famous? No, you know we had the band together. We uh, because we admired a, a band called the Traits, Roy Head and the Traits, and we wanted to have a band like them. So we got the band together in '58, and we just dreamed that hey, maybe one day we'll have a hit record. But you know, we knew we would never. You know, we knew we weren't going to ever have a hit record. That, it, but, but it was just a dream, and. Uh, Sure enough, uh, after a certain number of years, we did. I had my first hit in '65, uh, and uh, um, I went out. Went out on the road. My first gig was with James Brown. Um, uh, I went out and wow. toured with James, James Brown for a couple of weeks because they thought I was a they thought I was a black singer. They thought I was an R and B singer, and which was great with me because they, those guys were my heroes: Ray Charles and Bobby Bland and. Jackie Wilson and those guys. So uh, anyway, I worked with most of the most of the great R&B singers for about three or four years, and then you know eventually ended up with Dick Clark and, and kind of got my identity straight. You know. <laughs> so what was your first hit? Uh, it was a, a, a Hank Williams song. I'm so lonesome I could cry. It was a million seller for me in uh, 1966. So yeah. So, I just so did it with, hmm? you're probably the most well-known for raindrops keep falling on my head because of the movie. How did that come about? Yeah, well, you know, I was recording in Memphis, <clears throat> Tennessee, and I was doing good in Memphis. I was making hit, some hit records, and I just recorded Hooked on a Feeling, and that, that was a big record for me. And uh, the, the, the label came to me and, and uh, said, BJ, with you and Gloria, I just, we just got married. Uh, uh, they said, "Would you and Gloria move move to New York City?" And uh, uh, she said, "If you'll move up 
to, to New York, uh, I think I can get you a session and a song with the Burt Backrack and Hal David. Wow. So, you know, that sounded really good to me. And so I, uh, we moved up and I started kind of, uh, you know, going by uh, Mr. Backrack's apartment once or twice a week. And we would, uh, you know, look at songs and, uh, and go over songs. And then, uh, you know, before in just a couple of months, uh, the, you know, the Butch Cassidy thing mm -hmm. came up, the bicycle scene. And, uh, you know, he gave me a shot to do it. And, uh, you know, wow. Uh, so so where did the song come from? Did you already have it? Or did somebody write it for you? Or was it, yeah, it no, just uh, uh, Burt Bacharach composed the music. And he was doing the soundtrack and the score <laughs> for uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And uh, he had, a, had an idea. He just kept thinking raindrops. And so Hal David was the guy that wrote the lyrics. And he's a guy that just wrote from his heart. And anyway, he took the took the raindrops and wrote the song, and of course they put it with the with the bicycle scene and Paul Newman and Catherine Ross riding the bicycle as a as Butch Cassidy, and uh, you know it just uh, was a beautiful thing. I went I went out to California. We did the thing to the bicycle scene, and then uh, we redid we recut the song about six weeks later, and that became the number one number one record. Wow! Do you so, write and, your own songs? You know, I I write very little. That's probably the big shortcoming in my uh, in my career, and it, probably the reason I've been kind of quiet for the last few years is I I don't write like I should. But I am at the moment at this right now I'm I'm writing, and uh, you know trying to come up with some stuff. I had a session in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, on the fifteenth of this month, and I had to, of course, postpone that and set it back a little bit. But yeah, that's it's motivated me to to write, but I haven't written that much over my career. So let's talk a little bit more about the song with raindrops <clears throat> falling on my head. What is the premise for it in the way, based on the movie, but kind of explain more of uh, the thought process of what it's trying to tell the story? Well, you know, in the, in the movie, of course, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are, are outlaws and they're always being chased by the Pinkerton uh, people. <laughs> And uh, they hook up with, in uh, New York City with Etta Chase, who was, uh, um, she was a woman, I guess both of them uh, were in love with. And at the time of uh, the Raindrops song, they are not being chased and they found a farmhouse and a place where they can have a little peace and not be on the run. And uh, Butch Cassidy is uh, giving Etta Chase a ride on a bicycle and the, and uh, the song "Raindrops" plays, and it's it's about it's about the hey, the rain may fall on your head, and uh, it's going to fall mm -hmm. on everyone's head. But if you're free, uh, you don't have that big a worry, you know. So that's basically what it was about. And then, of course, Backrack and David, they kind of created that whole scenario where uh, of, of the of the great movie <clears throat> songs. Of course, there was Mancini and other people, but Backrack and David. I think made it uh, made it a situation where there were really some great songs in the movies, and not just something worded about the characters. You know. Wow, what luck, or or maybe you were just blessed being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I kind of was. I was with Scepter Records, and and uh, uh, Mr. Backrack was a big part of Scepter Records. He was part owner, and uh, their mainstay artist was a Dion Warwick. And uh, of course, Backrack and David wrote and produced most of her classic hit records. And uh, 
you know, I had seen him at, at the office in New York and I saw how cool he was and how handsome and charming. And I thought I was just always in awe of this guy. And, uh, and so to get to work with him was, um, was incredible. And it, it had a lot of iffy moments. Uh, everything turned out perfect with raindrops, even, even though I had a, an acute case of laryngitis when uh, we recorded the bicycle scene and I barely was able to sing it like, I think we sang it through four or five times. Uh, but Bert, uh, he never mentioned my throat uh, that I did. He, he liked the way it sounded, so it worked out pretty good. <laughs> now, it's interesting, DJ, when you talk about, you know, the song, but you had five Grammys. So your fans, talk a little bit about, I mean, the five Grammys, how awesome it was. So it's not just, you're not just a one-hit wonder. Just bringing this up for people that, you know, yeah. that are young because i have a i have a young hip audience different things not just you know yeah oh, and, that, that kind of question really wants to come out it's like you know yeah and you know i'm one of those artists uh, i'm not i'm not the kind of guy who's always looking for the spotlight i don't i'm not trying to be the number one guy in the world um i love to do music but uh you know just chasing the fame and I'm always you know being chasing that thing was something I, I got tired of years ago and we, I semi-retired in 1976 and uh, cut my schedule way back and we, of course we had we had three kids we had two kids after that and uh, you know that my family has been um, you know my essence but uh, I've had a lot of hit records uh, um, I've been very lucky with that and then uh, coming out of my kind of semi-retirement period, uh, I cut a gospel album. And I had been, uh, for years, I had had dr uh, drug and alcohol problems. And uh, uh, so when I, we stopped working, it was, that had, that was a big reason why. And uh, during that, that time off, I kind of came to my senses and I got, I, I woke up and, and uh, um, anyway, I made a, I made a gospel record and it became the first uh, platinum record in gospel history. And I actually had the first four platinum records in uh, gospel history. And uh, that's what I got my Grammys for. And, uh, you know, if you're not, if you're not into, in the gospel, then you don't even know it's there. So I had no idea yeah. there was even that interest industry there. And then I came kind of came back to, uh, you know, real, real music uh, in the, in the early eighties. And I had a few number one country records and, uh, uh, you know, uh, I've, ha I've had a good career. Uh, you know, I've, I've been very lucky. I worked with some of the great writers of my generation, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, uh, who wrote, you've lost that love and feeling. And they wrote, just can't help believing in a rock and roll lullaby for me. And of course I worked with Burt Backrack and Hal David and Mark James, the guy that wrote, Suspicious Minds wrote "Hooked on a Feeling" for me, so I've been uh, I've been lucky. I'm worth uh, just Google me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what what an amazing career! Uh, how fortunate you are. Uh, how do you how do you stay married to the same woman for how many years? <laughs> Fifty fifty two years. Well, wow. I think the question is how did she stay How did she <laughs> stay with me? Because uh, uh, I I put her through hell. I tell you. Uh, there were years that I was, I was pretty, my life was pretty tough, but, uh, you know, she, uh, always, we never gave up on each other. She, we're still in love and, uh, and, uh, she helped me, uh, see myself for who I really was. And, 
And, uh, you know, Stand we survived by. all that and we're still together, huh? Stand by your man. How, how, is, how has faith played a part in, you know, your recovery and, and your marriage and your life? Yeah, yeah, we do, we do have a, a faith. That, you know, I, I think we all need a faith in something. You know, we, uh, uh, we're not religious people. Um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, never could really make religion work for me. And I'm not sure religion really works, but uh, it does for some people. But, you know, we kind of go by, I kind of go by the golden rule. I mean, I try to treat people the way I'd like for them to treat me. And, uh, and, uh, and I live by, try to live by that principle. How important was it your wife standing, being by your side to overcome drugs and alcohol? Well, it was really, really the most important thing. And we had been separated a few times and, uh, you know, it got too much for both of us a time or two, but uh, she, uh, you know, she basically had a, had a spiritual awakening and, uh, and, uh, and she helped me have the same awakening to, to wow. the fact that the, the, you know, the spiritual es essence of, of everything is, is the only thing is the only meaning that it really has and so we love we love the music uh but that's i i can't just live off of record sales and uh, um so she she was a big part of that and uh, i owe her everything mm -hmm. wow so you're celebrating 50 years of music 50 years of marriage what a life how you feeling you in good health I, i'm feeling really good yeah i'm in great health i mean i know we're caught in this uh this crazy thing here, but uh, we're having to, you know, try to concentrate uh, and, and go by the rules and get through that. But, uh, you know, I've had a great life. I've always, uh, you know, I'll, prob I'll probably pass away next week, but I've been, <laughs> I've always been in good shape and, um, and um, I feel good. Uh, you know, I keep, uh, keep my head up. And that's uh, what I recommend for people is to Keep your head up, even when it gets tough. And you know this thing we're going through now is crazy, uh, but uh, we'll we'll get through it like we always do. How tough if is we if we follow some rules? You know? How tough is it for you for performing, not being able to perform in front of a crowd? Well, it, it is kind of tough, and I'm, I I kind of really stress on the stress on my band, and uh, along with worrying about my family and staying healthy, but. You know, I, along with the burning desire you have to do music, it's the only way you can do it is if, if you're just uh, totally all in on it. Uh, I really miss the road. I'm, I've been on the road, you know, since I was 15. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back to that when it's safe for everyone. Yeah, I'm curious how this all started. I mean, uh, how young were you when you picked up uh, a guitar or an instrument or you started singing and and uh, How did it all start? Well, we got you know, they tell me I've, I've always been a singer ever since I was a you know an infant You know, it's very young <laughs> that I always was singing but I a, a group of my buddies my brother's friends I really didn't know them until I went to the first little rehearsal we were all 15 years old and we got a band together called the triumphs and uh, you know we just dreamed of having a hit record one day and we knew we never were gonna have one but uh, uh, we, we just wanted to do that music have that have that rock and roll band and uh, and that's how it got started I met I was I was fortunate enough to meet Bobby Bland when I was a very young a kid and um, 
he was like a mentor to me and, and uh, um, I loved him and we just, uh, hey, we just started playing, the, we played out in the boondocks, we played big dances, teenage dances. And, uh, you know, we were too young to play nightclubs and things like that. So we always just played the, the big uh, boondock dances out there in, uh, in the country. And, who, were your, uh, who were your heroes? Who were you listening to back in those I days? Was, my hero was a guy named Roy Head. He had a record called Treat or Right mm -hmm. uh, ba back in the day. I want to tell you a story. Dun, 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 dun. Every man ought to know. I don't know if oh, you remember that. Love but, that, uh, but yeah. he, he's still my, uh, he's one of my best friends, but he was a big yeah, hero of mine, along with Bobby Bland and uh, Jackie Wilson mm. was uh, maybe my biggest inspiration. And, you know, I had a lot of guys I looked up to. Now, so that's very interesting, looking at the people you looked up to, all those different things, but you brought up a big break. You met the right person, right time. Is that part of life in a lot of ways is just being open to opportunity? And not a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think if you keep your, you know, if you, if, I've just always been the kind of, uh, I've had my moments, but the, you know, good things happen if you, if you, if you're in the moment and you, you keep your head up, and uh, that's what you know. I, of course, I met Gloria uh, when she was uh, 17, and we got married when she turned 18, and that was always a good thing for me. A big moment for me was I was about 13 years old, something like that. And I heard a Jackie Wilson record, a song called To Be Loved. And uh, it, it, it was such an emotional song. It opened my mind to the, to the way that music could be so expressive and could be so emotional and important in how you felt. And, uh, and he sounded like he believed everything he was singing. And so that, that I purposed it a, when I, at a very young age to, to mean what I was singing and not just sing something uh, for any other reason that, that, that I connected with it personally. And I kind of stood by that uh, criteria most of my career, so. That's great. Yeah. You know, BJ, the industry has changed so much. Uh, the old rules don't apply anymore. What uh, advice do you give to new musicians who are thinking about jumping in? Yeah, well, I think uh, keep it personal. You know, if you're a songwriter, uh, write about write about yourself and what you're doing and what you feel, and then you don't ever have to try to get an idea anywhere else. You, you already you have your your own perspective, and I think it's very important. And I was very fortunate to that this happened to me that I got in a band when I was 15. If you're starting, if you're just starting, and you want to be a singer or a writer or something performer try try to get in a band because then you learn how to hold your end up and you learn what it's like to be in a band and you learn what it's like to be in front of people and mm. uh th those two things will keep it personal and that'll, that'll take you a long way <laughs> that's, that's a device now dave has a final question and it's involving caregiving so dave go ahead and ask that question yeah, you know, uh, I was just a normal guy for many, many years. And then uh, one day my wife complains about a headache, turns into a uh, stroke, loses her speech, becomes paralyzed on one side. And we, uh, we struggled for a couple of years, but we, we hung in there. And now uh, we help other caregivers, you know, survive because many of them, 30% die before their loved ones do. Yeah. I wrote this book and... Um, just trying to help people, you know, not die, not, uh, you know, stay out of the hospital. I believe everyone is either going to become a caregiver or going to need a caregiver. Absolutely. Uh, no one's so, I believe like, that. you know, I started this website, caregiverdave.com, 
just to help caregivers to thrive and not just survive caregiving. Uh, how has it touched your life? You know, you have family members, parents, grandparents. Well, yeah, I mean, well, absolutely. I mean, there are, there's always a time uh, th that will come earlier uh, years ago, so, uh, 15, 20 years ago, I kind of became a caretaker for my brother, Jerry, uh, mm. who had, he was, had been a polio victim when he was young, but he survived it. But then, uh, you know, he got polio syndrome and he had certain surgeries and he, he lived with me for a, a few years. Mm. And I found out what it was like to, to care for somebody in that, in that way. And it's, you know, it's not easy. You really, you have to love someone uh, to, to kind of give them the care that they need. And my wife has just had the bypass surgery last year. Mm. And uh, so it was important for me to be there for her and to take care of her and look after her. So, you know, it comes up in your life. I'm sorry to hear about your wife, but you know that uh, those things happen. And uh, you, believe me, you really were rewarded for being there for somebody in that capacity. It's very meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now, she's doing great. Yeah, she's still doing great, and they're traveling the country together, so it's a tremendous story. Oh, great. Yeah, beautiful. So, yeah, yeah, BJ, I'll have to check that out. Uh, great story. I will. Uh, now, projects for you, BJ. What are the newest projects? You talk about celebrating raindrops keep falling on our head, but what else? Anything else? Well, I'm, I, I, as I probably mentioned it, I had a, uh, I had a session scheduled. Uh, for the middle of July for a Muscle Shoals, uh, Alabama. And uh, Dan Penn and Billy uh, Lawson, great songwriters, uh, we were going in the studio and record and make some new music. And, uh, and uh, so that's, that's the next project I'm really looking forward to doing. I'm going to do the, go do my one-nighters and be with my band and things, but uh, I'm really looking forward to going in. We've got some really good songs and, uh, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be fun. We had to, of course, reschedule it, but we're all in on it as soon as we, as soon as it's safe to get out there. How are you celebrating? Oh, BJ, it's your camera went out for a sec. Hold on to me. Okay. Oh, he's gone. Oh, goodness. All right. I at least have an editor to take care of it now. I still not figured out how to cut video of you. Uh, yeah, you've got to convert it to an MP4, and then uh, it's easy. It's just like doing an audio. All right, let me close it out because I don't think he's coming back. Yeah, a lot of editing programs will do MP3s and MP3s. No, no, it's hard to cut, like cut the different spots. Not you know, really. You know how to cut video? Yeah. Okay. It depends on the program. I, I, uh, Max harder. I don't like it. I think iMovie's harder. Send me the MP4. I'll cut it for you. All right. Well, well. Thanks, Dave. But uh, we're gonna, I'm going to close out if uh he because he right. almost said something so i don't think he's coming back you want to say something as if he was there to close it out yeah yeah well again thanks again for bj thomas to come by everyone needs to check out uh celebrating awesome. raindrops keep falling on our head and all the different stuff and wow five grammys and that was another great show dave and you Years. are watching the neil haley show it's coming thank you all right we'll <laughs> and we'll be back in just a moment Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of The Neil Haley Show and Freedom From Addiction here on Lipson and also are all syndicated platforms in the country. And I'm excited about today's show 
again, what I try to bring in this segment slash show and programs all over the place is something that Wynn Henderson, Reverend Wynn Henderson MD's mission is truth just below the surface. And basically thinking about truth just below the surface involving the coronavirus, involving QAnon, involving all these different things that have not reached the mainstream media yet, but trust me, it will. And so that if you listen to this program, you're going to be ahead of the curve in what's happening. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? And uh, excited about our topic for today. Yes, Neil. Um, our topic for today is what's the correlation between vitamin D deficiency and increase COVID-19 mortality. All right, so that's interesting in a lot of ways uh, to look at that, especially when the mortality rate for people that do not have pre-existing conditions or are, is very low. So it'd be interesting to see how those are the mortality rate. So what is vitamin D3 deficiency and how prevalent is it? Well. My research indicates that about 90% of people in the United States are vitamin D deficient. And this deficiency has collided with the COVID-19 pandemic and likely radically increased the number of deaths because of the insufficiency. Well, we know that at least 40% of the population has severe vitamin D deficiency as conservatively defined by a blood test. And that blood test indicates that you have 20 nanograms per milliliter or less. So the researchers believe that over 40 nanograms per milliliter is the ideal vitamin D level that you should have on a blood test. And over 95% of children and 87% of adults have less than this ideal level. Wow, that's just, uh, that's uh, very, very interesting in how we can do that. So. Are there currently studies that prove vitamin D's effectiveness in treating COVID uh, treating COVID nineteen? A recent study, Neil, at the University of Chicago, of over four thousand patients, found that untreated vitamin D deficiency was associated with an increased risk of COVID nineteen infection. Another observational study in Southeast Asia found that of those with a critical or severe case of COVID-19, only 4% had normal vitamin D levels, whereas 96% of those with a mild case had normal vitamin D levels. Another retrospective study involving 780 cases in Indonesia found that vitamin D status was strongly associated with COVID-19 mortality. And uh, it demonstrated a radical reduction in the death rate from COVID-19 as vitamin D levels increased to over 30 um, 
nanograms per ml. And so what we're saying is a less than 20 severe deficiency and over 40, you're in the good, good green zone. So what you want to do is get your blood level of vitamin D up to those levels. Does vitamin D3 deficiency <coughs> increase your risk of catching COVID-19 and dying from it? Well, yes. Um, there are many reviews that consider the ways in which vitamin D reduces your risk of viral infection. It uh, likely reduces the risk in respiratory infections because it influences several of your immune pathways with the net effect of boosting your mucosal barrier defenses while simultaneously dampening excessive inflammation. Are the, there studies that say vitamin D supplementation doesn't work? Well, yes, there are, but they're deficient um, in that they have not ask the right questions. So in each of these cases that it shows that it doesn't work, there's a common flaw in the study. And so we don't have studies that are well set up that shows that vitamin D doesn't work. Tell us about vitamin D dosing. Well, you need to, um, you need to input your weight because the dose is somewhat dependent on whether or not you're overweight or not. And um, so there is a website that you can go and look at www.grassrootshealth.net forward slash project forward slash calculator. And what is determined is that virtually there's no risk of taking a dose of 8,000 international units per day. So this seems to be a safe strategy. I found by calling a pharmacist that they have it over the counter and uh, they just had a 10,000 um, dose, but that's fine too. So if you are normal body weight, or underweight, you might be able to get by with a thousand to two thousand units per day. But if all they've got to offer you over the counter is ten thousand, go ahead and take ten thousand. Research has indicated that the, um, the normal dose that I just told you about has no toxic effects. Okay, so that's good to know. So, so there's uh, definitely, uh, it's definitely safe. What is the association between magnesium and vitamin D? Well, over half the population, Neil, does not get enough magnesium in their diet. And far more than half are likely deficient. So magnesium supplementation is recommended when taking vitamin D. Uh, this is because magnesium helps to activate vitamin D as the enzymes that metabolize vitamin D in the liver and kidneys require magnesium. 
In fact, about half of those taking vitamin D supplements are unable to normalize their vitamin D levels until they take magnesium. So uh, you should uh, go to your drugstore and get over-the-counter magnesium at the uh, dosage level that's recommended on the bottle and take it also in addition to the um, vitamin D3. Okay, and I guess, uh, so one, one question I'm asking is what types of, what is good things to, that's natural without taking vitamins that are vitamin, that have lots of vitamin D in them? Well, you can't get enough in your routine um, one-a-day type vitamin combinations. So you need to buy your vitamin D just by itself so that you can make sure that you're getting um, approximately 10,000 units of vitamin D. Uh, same thing with magnesium. Uh, sometimes your regular vitamins will have a little bit magnesium in them. But um, you, can, um, you can go and just buy magnesium as a supplement and read the directions on the, on the bottle to find out. Now, vitamin D and two other supplements are what you need to decrease your chance of getting COVID. And if you do get it, decreasing your chance of dying for, uh, from it. And there's zinc, which you can get over the counter at a dose of around uh, 50 milligrams per day. And vitamin C. And uh, vitamin C you can get at 1,000 milligrams per day and take two pills a day. That's 2,000 milligrams per day. So that's what you need. You need vitamin D, zinc, and vitamin C and also uh, a little magnesium. And the last question is, can you test to see if you have low levels of vitamin D through blood work with your doctor? Yes, yes. Uh, I've got a blood test in right now, and I'm gonna find out what my vitamin D3 level is. Do they usually test all those? Do they usually test that when they run a full blood work? No, not generally. Interesting, okay. All right. Well, very great uh, information, Win, and uh, best place we can find information on you and go is it, there's a few places. Well, yeah, Neil. Um, the, the most productive place would be to come to this podcast, and you can tell your friends. And the uh, address is www.freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. And you spell Libsyn, L-I-B, as in boy, S-Y-N. Don't put any spaces between the words and don't capitalize it. And that should take you to my most recent podcast, which will be this one uh, in, a, in a few hours. And then you can scroll back to see maybe 200 other podcasts that I've done and, and pick the ones that you're interested in. The other thing is my website.